you, you can holler, you can applaud, you can scream, you can do anything you want. I can't hear you anyway. <laughs> Mike Render, thank you so much for joining me today on the Salt Lake Dirt Podcast. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Kyler. It's a, a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So we're, we're here to talk uh, you know, about your, your new memoir, A Billion Years, My Escape from a Life in the Highest Ranks of Scientology. Uh, I just finished it a couple of days ago. Um, yep. It did not disappoint. I was engrossed in it. It was an amazing book. So uh, thank you for writing it, first of all. Uh, I imagine this was a, a long time coming. I'd like to kind of hear about, because uh, you, you've been involved in activism for, for several years now. Um, and then a book is just kind of like the natural uh, place to, to end up. Uh, how long was has this book been in the works? Uh, yes, years. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I always, like a lot of people ask me, you know, please, would you just write a book, write your story? And I was somewhat reticent to do it for a number of reasons. First of all, um, as you probably now understand from reading my book, uh, there I've been involved in a lot of things. And it seemed a daunting task to try and reconstruct and recount them all. And I was very concerned always that Scientology keeps astonishing levels of written files and paper and records on everything that has ever happened. And that if I wrote a book, I would have to make sure that it was almost perfect in the accuracy of everything that is included. And otherwise that they would attack it as being uh, fiction and would pick out bits and pieces and say, look, this proves everything in here is fiction. Um, the second thing that sort of was daunting to me was it was sort of um, a little, I, I don't know, uh, like, I'm not sure what quite what the right word for it is, Kyla. Like PTSD, like yeah. like um, trauma, back right. memories that I didn't really want to have to relive um, or write about in particular. But what ultimately happened was I started putting together at least a sort of an outline and timeline, like maybe three or four years ago, and my wife kept saying to me. You gotta get. You gotta sit down and write. You gotta sit down and write. You gotta do it. You gotta do it. I'm like, okay, honey, that's easy for you to say. I'm the one that has to do it. And then COVID happened, and then I literally was sitting at home with nothing really that I could do. Mm -hmm. So I went, okay, it's time to get serious. And then I started writing seriously. Um, it took me a good, good, you know, number of months to then take that outline and flesh it out into something that I thought was, uh, sort of worthwhile. And then subsequent to that, it took, uh, a considerable amount 
of time further with an editor or two, three editors ultimately in the end who were extremely helpful and in fact were a little more than editors. Uh, you know, at least one of the women who helped me tremendously was almost like my therapist. She would ask me, well, so what were you feeling? What were you thinking? Can you explain this to me? And that sort of coaxed out a lot more of the of the sort of processes uh, through which I went, getting myself first immersed in, then like fully committed to, and then starting to doubt, and then escaping, and then eventually uh, eradicating the the thought stopping mind messing fucking stuff that i had been you know in since i was five years old so right. there's a very long-winded answer to a relatively simple question <laughs> but, but then again i do tend to ramble so i love cut me off cut me off whenever you feel perfect like it. for a podcast that's a that's a great <laughs> thing for a podcast because people tune in that's you know if they if they stay listening that's what they want to hear so right i love it um i you know i would i was just thinking about it reading it because i mean you have been a very public face um and, and with the show with leah remini the aftermath uh your daily blog your podcast like very very active so we're familiar with you those of us who've um kind of been following all you know the scientology and um the the abuses that happened there but i i was just sitting like like any i talked to a, uh, someone who wrote a memoir a few weeks ago and we were kind of chatting about no matter what your life is it, it seems like an emotionally taxing process no matter what's happened to you in your life now especially if you 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 tack on um trauma and you know horrible memories uh that you have to recount recount so something uh i you know your book is just one after the other it seems like an, <laughs> an exhausting process to have to go through recounting it you know it sounds it sounds like you know worse and more tiring than than therapy um you know in the end cathartic i would imagine but it, it just I, that's why i asked i was curious how long this would take because yeah, uh, you know, you you've been, like I said, a public face, but you've we know a bit about you, but you you really your focus is helping others clearly. Uh, so you're there to support others, and like in the show, one of my you know I love that show and how you know each episode has a a, a different person, different people, and you and Leah are there to help them, help mm -hmm. them process their trauma, and you know you give some of your personal stories, but the ultimate focus is the other person. And helping them kind of creating a life after scientology so uh i guess my point is not really a question well done <laughs> with doing with doing this uh and props to you for um sticking it out and writing the memoir because i know you know i have been super curious to hear the the whole life story and this was just a like i said a one a wonderful memoir but uh it must have been <laughs> exhausting <laughs> for you well, it was. And, you know, I write at the end that uh, when I finally sort of finished and felt satisfied that I had told the story of my life the way that I wanted to tell it, I 
stopped having nightmares. Mm -hmm. I had serious nightmares ever since I left uh, Escape the Sea Org. And and that's a very common thing. I've talked to many, many people, particularly those who were at the international headquarters of Scientology, and this recurring nightmare of being back there and unable to escape uh, had, had plagued me for years and years and years. Uh, you know, even 15 years on, still having those same horrible waking up like oh my god <laughs> and and that those ended and i have not had any further of those nightmares since i finished the book and you know if nothing else comes out of this book that is a great a great thing for me at least oh yeah absolutely that's a what a gift i mean you probably weren't expecting that if that was the, the end game that's uh that's brilliant yeah i know i wasn't expecting that at all <laughs> i was ex i in some ways i sort of had it in my mind well it's probably going to get worse because i'm deliberately sitting down and re re living these experiences over again, over again and you know we come back from the editor well what about this what about oh my god i have to think about this i go oh my god i have to put that in there and reliving and reliving and reliving but perhaps the reliving over and over and finally putting it into a form that i felt like okay i'm done i've told the story i've recounted the incidents i've i've done my best to describe what I was thinking and how I was feeling and why did I not leave yet? Um, maybe that was the process that I needed to go through to get that sort of relief. Yeah, that's, oh, I love that. I, I was talking to um, a novelist recently and he, he's had some successful books and some books that just fell flat and he, he said he got to a point and he's written over about a dozen books. He, he said he, um, he got to a point where he didn't let it bother him if it, if the book sold or not, because they have books have a, tend to have a life, uh, a long life. He was saying, as opposed to, uh, maybe, you know, online content and stuff where it's like, there's an insatiable hunger for it. a book, you know, you may bump into it at a used bookstore or at the library. Uh, so it has a long life. And I was thinking about that comment, especially at the beginning of your book, when you you write, uh, you know, like an open letter to your adult children specifically. Uh, what, a, what a painful thing. But I think the beauty of that, that letter, you just articulated it so well um, in such a loving way. You're, you know, you're being, um, you're disconnected. You're shunned by people that, that mean a great deal to you. Um, but this letter, you know, will live on, you know, and who knows what will come of that in your life and in others, other lives. Uh, so I think, I think just having, I guess I wanted to ask you the, the, the um, having that in your mind, writing about your family, such a personal um, component of who you are and having that torn away from you, uh, you know, how, how were you able to get through that and, um, I don't know, come out the other end. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm just, I was just very taken aback and impressed with that whole letter at the beginning. 
Well, you know, that letter came about from a conversation I had with Larry Wright, the author of Mm -hmm. Going Clear, who I became quite friendly with. And I reached out to him at one point and said, Larry, you know, people keep asking me to write a book and I think I'll do it. But, you know, you're the best writer I know. Mm -hmm. Give me what your best advice is. And he said, write what means something to you. Write. Don't write what you think others will write what you believe. He said, do you know what my best, in my view, my best book is? I said, Looming Tower, Going Clear. Like I rattled off a bunch of his, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times number one best-selling, translated into Netflix, (laughs) uh, HBO (laughs) show. And and he said, nope, it's it's the compilation of letters to my parents. Because that had the most meaning for me. And he said, knowing you, Mike, like I do, and your history, I think you should write a book for your children. The ones who don't know you. Maybe someday they will read it. Maybe you will no longer be around for them to read it. But your story will be there forever. And that's the sort of how this book came to be addressed to my two children that I brought into Scientology and the Sea Organization, who still remain there to this day, and uh, the you know poster children for the Scientology fair game attacks on me. So, it you know I, I write in the book too about what it was like and why it took me so long to finally get out. And that was primarily because I didn't want to abandon my wife and two children, even though as a detail at great length in the book, I really wasn't the the father of those two children. I was the genetic father, but they were raised by the organization. They became property of the Scientology uh, organization from the age of like three days until today. And they were what I believed were, you know, at the time, I believed that they were very fortunate. I believe that they were had been brought into the greatest environment possible for a child to grow up in the inner most sanctum of the Scientology world, which is to a true believing Scientologist, the only good world there is. And, you know, like I say, I look back with great regret about that now. And if I, and I, I say in the beginning, if I knew now, If I knew then what I know now, you certainly would not be in the position that you're in, but I can't change what happened in the past. I can only hope to change what happens in the future. And that's sort of the philosophy that I operate with. I can't wallow in regret about things that have transpired in my life, things that I've done, decisions that I've made, because that won't change anything. All I can do is look forward and hope to bring about change to prevent things from happening that I believe 
were wrong or are wrong or are abusive. Um, and, and to that degree, I guess that's what has, that's sort of the comforting thought process that I go through that has allowed me to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you yourself, um, you know, as a young boy growing up in Australia, I mean, you, you, your parents came into this, you were at a pretty, you were at a young age yourself. Um, and you're at the age where everything your parents do, you, you, you know, you don't question it because that you just, your brain's not there yet. Uh, so you came in, how old were you again? When, when your parents about five, right? So that was, you know, that was your, that was your normal. That was your life. That was your reality. Um, yes. Yeah. So you also grew up in a similar, you know, situation um which i think you know in the in the future for them if they do read this book they can see that too i mean there's a lot there's a lot of similarities people who grow up in high control groups when we grow up in them in, in, a, in a at a young age um you know very different and unique but there's very similar constants that that kind of run through um you know the, the person the group whatever so you know i think a lot of people including your children are really going to relate to this book um, and maybe forgive themselves. Hopefully if they, if they feel regret at any point. I, 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 I certainly hope that that is the case. Uh, You know, another, uh, another massive source of inspiration for me for this book was Tara Westover. Her book educated is Mm -hmm. a, an absolutely stunningly brilliant piece of literature that had a very profound effect on me. And I'm sure it has had a very profound effect on all sorts of people, no matter what their religious affiliation was growing up, Mm -hmm. because these, her story and hopefully mine, I hope speak to people who find themselves in all sorts of different unwelcome circumstances in their life a a bad relationship a bad job you know familial difficulties you know who knows what but everybody's got problems in their life and i hope that people will take uh my experience as uh like uh well if that guy can do it and he can escape at 52 years old and start an entirely new life with nothing, then I can do it. And maybe my problems, maybe my the things that are so troubling to me aren't really as big as what that was. So I hope that the book speaks uh, to a much wider audience than just people who've been in Scientology or even just people who have been in cults. And that, that, that's my very sincere hope. I'm, I'm not trying to say that, that my book is, is at the same level as Tara Westover's book. I'm just saying that inspired me because I believe that there is a place in the world for people to be recounting their life history as a, as a, a lesson and perhaps a comfort to other people. Yeah, I would absolutely 
put it in that same category. Um, I, you know, I think, like I said, this is something I'm going to revisit over the years. Definitely. It's going to have a nice safe spot on my bookshelf. Um, and I think what, what you just mentioned about, um, coming out at 50 in your early fifties, that part, I really enjoyed and found inspiring, um, where, where you did, where you did run away. Um, and then you were like, you know, you're in survival mode, but then you also need to make a living and you have, you have nothing of a resume that anyone out there in the, in the, you know, in the, in the other world would, um, would be able to understand, but you had people that helped you. And it seems like you were able to pull some of the, the skills that were, you know, I would imagine natural to yourself, uh, but also things you honed over years being, you know, you know, those insane work schedules and things you, you know, you were, you were put through and had to do, um, you jumped right into taking care of yourself, which was such an inspiration, um, and a wonderful thing. I I would love if, you know, if, if you don't mind talking a bit about that kind of, um, when you left the, the logistics, the everyday life of how you were able to kind of get on your feet and create a new life, um, and just kind of, you know, people can do this, people can, you know, people can get through the other end. Yeah. Well, when I left, I relied on three people who were also former Sea Org members who had escaped prior to me. Had they not been around, I don't know what I would have done, Kyla. I had no family to go to. I didn't know anybody other than Scientologists my entire life. I didn't really have anything, uh, you know, support network or system to rely on. I didn't have any money. I, you know, like, I had worked in the Sea Org for, for, you know, 30 plus years being paid less than $50 a week. I, I was not uh, flush. <laughs> so uh, I ended up going to, to uh, originally to a, a dear friend of mine called Tom DeVocht. And then subsequently from there, and I, I talk about this in great detail in the book, but subsequently from there, I went to live with Oddly. David Miscavige's elder brother, Ronnie, and his wife, Biddy, who were, uh, you know, it's funny. I talk earlier in the book about my efforts to prevent them from leaving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my because of my relationship with them, they were the probably the closest friends that I had in the Sea Org. Anyway, I ended up with them. And uh, originally, Ronnie had uh gotten a a job as a realtor that i had helped him to get when i was still in the office of special affairs to keep him out of trouble quote unquote in any event he said i'll i'll get you a job as a, a real estate broker a mortgage uh, lender at our realty company and i went and i had an interview and it went great and the guy thought i was like just perfect for the job and shortly thereafter, the 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 bottom fell out of the real estate market in the middle of 2007. And they said, we're not doing mortgages anymore. We're not hiring anyone. So Ronnie says to me, okay, look, I've got a friend at the car dealership. And, uh, you know, you've always liked cars. And, and that's true. I used to subscribe to Road and & Track and Car and & Driver magazine, even in the Sea Org. <laughs> uh, 
I was like a car kind of a nut. So I went along and did an interview to get a job as a salesperson selling cars. And interestingly, it was a, a like a family-owned series of dealerships, and the son-in-law of the of the patriarch of the business was a big sailor, like a yachtsman. And he had gone, spent a lot of time in Australia. He was a crew member on the America's Cup and blah, 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 blah. So he and I hit it off really well, and he decided that he was going to hire me. And so I got a job selling Toyotas at the local Toyota dealership in Williamsburg, Virginia. And to me, working five days a week was like, I didn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> five days a week, like eight or nine hours a day, I was like, I was sort of lost. Like seriously, I, it just didn't seem right. So I was working six and a half days a week at 12 hours a day and thinking it was a, a, a cushy life of luxury. <laughs> and because of that and that sort of work ethic that you mentioned, I was pretty successful pretty quickly. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed meeting people. It was interesting to me. There were all sorts of different people that walked in and every one of them had a different story. And they were, none of them were Scientologists. And it seemed suddenly that perhaps the world outside the bubble of Scientology wasn't quite as evil and fucked up as you are told <laughs> it is when you're inside it. And the activities selling cars sort of re like just every day, it was like another kind of little bit of the onion peeled away of, Hey, this isn't so bad. The guys that I'm working with, they're pretty cool. Yeah. Everybody thinks car salesmen are, are asshole, you know, shysters. There were some really nice people that worked there, like really nice. And, you know, this guy from a Middle Eastern guy who would, who was just the nicest man and took me home and cooked me Middle Eastern food and br would bring in food for us for lunch. And, it was just a very enjoyable um, time to get my footing and everything was sort of new. I bought my first car. I got a great deal on a, you know, a car that nobody that they couldn't sell at the dealership because it had a hundred thousand miles on it. And, but the used car manager who I also became very friendly was like, this is a great deal. This car will never break down. It's a Toyota Camry. It's got 100,000 miles on it. It's only three years old. Someone used it to commute. It'll go forever, and I'll give it to you for basically nothing. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't even remember. I think I bought it for like $7,000 or something. It was a three-year-old Toyota Camry. And now I had the freedom. Then I went and found an apartment. I moved out of Ronnie and Biddy's house and got an apartment, and now I could go driving when I had my time off and I actually started spending less time at the dealership and more time doing things that I had never done in my life. Like the freedom to be able to get up on Sunday at 10 o'clock if I wanted and then go, okay, well, I'm going to drive to Richmond today and take a look around, or I'm going to drive to Newport news, or I'm going to go somewhere and just, see what's there was, was quite, uh, it was very liberating, very liberating. 
And so my uh, sort of transition into the real world from that perspective was relatively smooth. It wasn't, it wasn't that difficult. I had nightmares. I had insecurities about things and worries about things that I probably shouldn't have worried about, but I succeeded pretty quickly at making money to live and, and actually ended up having a, you know, I didn't have any other, I didn't have any dependents to support. It was just me, you know, Mm -hmm. I had a two bedroom apartment in the end that was like, I didn't know what to do with all the space. (laughs) (laughs) Like I didn't have any furniture. So I had a card table and a coat rack and a bed and, you know, like I gradually sort of accumulated things, but it was, um, it, I, I felt like it was living like a king. And probably to most people, uh, they would look at me and go, this guy's kind of like basic. <laughs> He's pretty basic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it reminds me of, uh, kind of, you know, you know, it's like the freedom someone gets when, when a teenager gets their license yes. or, or coming out of high school or college and having that like, Oh, I can, I can stay up all night and eat ice cream if I want. So it's kind of like when people leave cults and high control groups, um, I think that's a pretty common experience where you feel, you know, the feelings that you, that, a that a person, uh, as a late teenager or early twenties, you experience this and you have this youthful, um, you know, vision, ex- excitement about the world around you. Yeah, well, I was a little late to the party, <laughs> like like thirty years late. <laughs> but I, I I will say, and I I do want to stress, and I want to make a little plug for something. Without the assistance of Tom Tavacht, and then Ronnie and Biddy Miscavige, and then Biddy's sister and, and brother-in-law Jim and Sarah Mortland, I probably I don't know what would have happened, and. This is a story that has been repeated many times uh, with people who have come out of Scientology, and I now know other high-control groups or cults. So myself and the Headleys, uh, a, a number of people that appeared on the Aftermath program began a foundation called the Aftermath Foundation, which is a nonprofit that is designed to, cr- to provide a network and resources for people escaping Scientology. And that has been tremendously successful and tremendously satisfying to have something now that we have created that has helped so many people uh, who in the past had to like sort of rely on um, luck or their particular skill to to find where these people were now it's easy they just need to contact the aftermath foundation we'll put them in touch with someone in their area someone to help them get a job a place to live we can give them money if they need it to get started and etc etc so that's something that has come out of this whole experience that's been very very positive that's wonderful. Um, I'll make sure and put a link to that. I think one of the, you know, if people are aware of that, that may help kind of 
unlock a part of their brain because there is that fear of I I'm kind of stuck here. I have to make this work because I have no other option. I don't know anyone. Uh, I just can't do it. So something like this is this is the first. I, I I've been familiar with the foundation. I think I'm sure there's other things like this, but I've never heard of a, a that specific um, of a, of a foundation that helps people come out of this. I mean, what a wonderful, wonderful um, thing that's available to people who are leaving Scientology, because there has to be a lot of people who at least the thought has crossed their mind. And on your, you know, in your book, it, you mentioned that I think many times where, you know, you little, little thoughts kind of creep in, but then, but then you get checked by your yourself where it's like, Oh, I can't, well, what would I do though? I can't do right. it. I can't do it. Right. Right. And, and ultimately Kyla, we, because now this foundation has become pretty well, you know, relatively well known. A lot of people from other organizations said, well, can we have one for us? And, and, Honestly, ideally, our objective is to grow the foundation to the point where it can, in fact, be a network and resource for anybody from any, like we're focused and have been focused on Scientology since we began, because that's what we all know. But uh, we wanted to ultimately expand this into something larger. And, it, you know, if it, if it prompts someone who... Uh, wants to create a similar foundation for other organizations or other people that need help, we will help them any way we can. That's great. Um, it, it actually reminds me of a film. A friend of mine made a documentary several years back called Sons of Perdition um, about the, they, they call them the lost boys who kind of escaped the, the fundamentalist LDS church down in Southern right. Utah specifically. So a lot of those, you know, teenagers, they come into St. George, which is the biggest, um, you know, city down there in Southern Utah. And he, so he made a documentary about, um, their process and just, you know, especially coming out. I mean, I think there, in some ways there may be some benefits to coming out later in life, teenager in their twenties, they can make some horrible decisions that, you know, could impact them. But anyways, so there, there was a group down there that did try to help them get on their feet, but the resources you know, weren't there, there were not a lot of people involved. So it's wonderful that something can, uh, um, the aftermath can, you know, get such a, a well-known um, audience, people are aware of it. And I think, and then, like you said, it can, other people can see, oh, this is a thing that, you know, maybe my former group, we can, we can do something to help. And yeah. it just, it, it spreads. It's great. Yep. Yep. Um, one, okay. So I want to go back to, one thing I, I loved um, because I'm a U.S. I'm a high school U.S. history teacher, and so when you uh, were at this period of your life, we we're just talking about where yeah. you, were, you were selling cars. You said uh, you kind of fell in love with living in you know Virginia. The you know U.S. history it's everywhere there. Uh, so I would just love <laughs> to kind of hear about that and maybe some of the things you found most interesting and. Um, you know, could, I, I, I love hearing, especially from someone who, who isn't from the United States originally, uh, kind of what grabs them and what they find interesting. Okay. Well, I had no sort of clue that the, you know, that, that little triangle, Williamsburg, 
Jamestown, Yorktown is like the, you know, if you wanted to cram history of the United States into, <laughs> into one like 50 square mile area, that would be it. Yeah. And because you start with the, the first settlers and, and the, the enormous hardships that those people put up with. I mean, it's insane. Like there's a, a really wonderful museum at the site of that, that, that settlement. And it, it, it's sort of mind boggling what these people managed to survive mm -hmm. and the, the, the lack of food and the cold and the, the native American attacks and the, you know, like how they managed to persist and survive through that is like kind of, kind of un, unthinkable. Right. Yeah. And, and, and then you move over to, to Williamsburg and you get, you know, here's where George Washington raised the army and they were all rallied there. And Williamsburg itself is a pretty, you know, interesting because the whole old city town of Williamsburg continues to have people dressed up like mm -hmm. they were in colonial times and making furniture the way they used to make furniture and et cetera, et cetera. And that's all fascinating. The one that was most interesting to me is actually Yorktown because that's where the, really the, the end of British rule was sort of, you know, the British Navy got, got the shit kicked out of them there. <laughs> And that standing on the the remnants of the the fortress there and reading about what happened, and you know those moments in history are so so um when you're there, they're mm -hmm. so vivid. It's like oh you you it's almost like you can hear the sounds and and see things and and it's like, wow, this is like. How did all this happen in this little part of the world? Because it's like the colonial parkway that joins Yorktown, Williamsburg, and Jamestown is only like 35 or 40 mm -hmm. miles long or something, which is an absolutely magnificent drive. If you've ever not, if, if you're ever in the area, drive down the colonial parkway from one end to the other because it is stunningly beautiful, particularly in the fall. But any time of year, the summertime is also beautiful. That part of the world is like, and then Richmond is, you know, just 50 or 60 miles away. And I went and spent a lot of time in Richmond because I found it so, so stunningly beautiful. I mean, it is a, a sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, there were things about the South that were very, um, very, uh, what's the right word? uh aesthetic like the homes and the trees and the the big wide boulevards and it, it's a very very aesthetically beautiful city of course with statue or used to be when i was <laughs> yeah. there with you know robert right. e lee and all, all the, the the great confederate leaders but it's you know i just found all of that stuff 
I had never known anything about U.S. history. I mean, I didn't get taught much U.S. history when I was in Australia, that's for sure. You know, that's still very colonial. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that they teach a whole lot of U.S. history in England either, other than those bastards got away from us. <laughs> I mean, so, so I, I learned a lot, and I, I don't claim to be a history buff, but I found it fascinating, and it sort of made me want to know more about more things historically and how they went down and what did the people at that time go through? You know, it's one thing to say, well, there was a battle here or the, these people landed here and that was the first settlement, but what, what, what was life like for them? And I still am fascinated by that sort of stuff. You know, depictions of, of historical, you know, events are, uh, things that I enjoy a great deal. Right. No, it's it's so true what you said. I, I lived in Boston in my mid twenties, um, and that's when I decided I wanted to become. I wanted to go to school and become uh, a U.S. history teacher. You know, so I never really had a strong interest in it. But I think like living, I just live a few blocks away from Paul Revere's home. Uh, right. So you just you you kind of develop. It's it becomes real and it, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but I'm thinking, I don't know if you've ever been to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, no. You need to go there at some point next time you're anywhere near there. That was one similar to Richmond, but uh, it's a still a very small town. Uh, the cemetery there, the museum, um, all the uh, the monuments that kind of scatter the battlefield is unbelievable. And the tour guides there are outstanding and will walk you all through. Uh very incredible you know place but yeah they're they're all over the east coast so it's um that's that's great it makes me think about um you know you get out of a cult and you're able to you have these interests you can you can spend time and you can drive places you can do things i loved when you talked about uh you get you got a stack of movies from blockbuster (laughs) to just get kind of get caught up on the past 20 years so um yeah Maybe I could ask you about that. So some of the films, possibly books that um, during this period of your life, what you what you kind of gravitated towards. Um, I don't know. I, I'm probably going to shock you with with one here. <laughs> I became somewhat of a fanatic of Boston Legal. You mentioned I, that in the book. Yep. <laughs> I love that show. I love William Shatner. I love James Spade. I love the show. I love the the um the humor of it, but also the the sort of perspective about things because it always presented these interesting perspectives. I mean, William Shatner was a genius at just coming up with the weirdest stuff that was like, well, that's kind of interesting, actually. It's <laughs> You know, it sounds stupid, but he's kind of making a good point. The writing on that show was amazing. And that's one that really, really stuck out to me very much and is still a favorite of mine. And whenever I see William Shatner, I always like, okay, I'll I'll hear what he has to say. Like when, (laughs) when he went up in that in that space ship recently whatever that was i thought oh my god that is so cool this guy is just 
perfect. He yeah. is like he is like just a uh, he is a, a, an American treasure. He he, he, he really is. is. He really is. <laughs> so um, that was one. I, I you know the movies that I watched. I don't remember the the any of them really sticking out to me that much, or even books at that point. The books that had the big, biggest impact on me, the ones that I talk about in the book, are actually three. There are three books that had a huge, huge impact on me. Perhaps the greatest was Russell Miller's unauthorized biography of L. Ron Hubbard, Madman or Messiah, which is an absolutely brilliantly constructed and fabulously researched book about the life of Hubbard that I had believed when I was in Scientology was just all lies. And it is so far from that. It is the thing that finally sort of broke my mesmerization um, with respect to Hubbard. The other one was, uh, or that, the second is Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, another stunningly brilliant book about, and, and you know, for me, I hope that my book will go, people will go, well, if he could do it, I can do it. Victor Frankl's book is like, if this guy survived and is still sane and, and has compassion and empathy for other people, anybody can just literally this is like this is like the most stunning story uh, that anybody has ever written as a memoir and you know it's not i mean it is a memoir but it's so much more than a memoir like it doesn't do justice to the book to call it a memoir and then the third is um a fairly easy to digest and understand book by Professor Martha Stout called The Sociopath Next Door. Mm-hmm. And that one also had a profound impact on me because it made me realize that David Miscavige isn't a, a, a unicorn, that he is has recognizable characteristics that uh, there are plenty of other people have that I wasn't um, you know, I wasn't in the presence of, of something that was so bizarre that nobody would ever, uh, understand it or believe it. Um, and it gave me some comfort to recognize that this is actually a, you know, he is actually a, an identifiable personality type mm-hmm. and that I wasn't crazy you know, that this was, this is real. This is like, this really does happen. People like this really do exist. They really do abuse people. They really have no conscience. They, whatever, all the stuff that she talks about in the book. And so those, those three books, if I, I can identify anything that had the greatest impact on me since escaping Scientology, it is those three books. I'm going to put links to those. I've read um, Victor Frankl's is, is one I revisit every few years, and I've read um, the sociopath book. I've been meaning to read the the barefaced barefaced messiah. Um, so I, I think you just sold it for me. So I'm going to have to get a copy of that and 
and read it. But yeah, um, but yeah, I, I guess I've already said it, but just reiterating just the the amazing thing of um, having time to do <laughs> things that you and you get to choose what you want to. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, they and it's a good thing they have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. But uh, it's amazing when you don't have this um, thing consuming you and stressing you. It's I mean, I, I can't imagine what it does to the, the nervous system um, living like that, especially in Scientology. Yeah, well, it's not good. I can tell you that. And, <laughs> and you know, uh, many, many people comment, and I also do the same. Uh, like the infamous uh, interview I put in quotation marks that, I, that was the final sort of final straw before I escaped with John Sweeney in London, John Sweeney from the BBC. Um, I look at that footage and you know, people say, you look like you just got out of a prison camp. You look so gray, gaunt, sickly, uh, you know, glazed over eyes, starey man. Um, and it's true. I was. I, I had been in the hole for two years almost, uh, sleep deprived, food deprived, uh, pleasure deprived. <laughs> freedom deprived and it's very apparent in my in how i look mm -hmm. in in that situation that the the um that this just isn't a um imagination it's not you know you can see the physical evidence that i wasn't in good physical or mental shape by that point i was really fucked up and uh i have i have since that time very often thanked john sweeney who became and has become a good friend of mine and i even mentioned in the book you know he came to my wedding to my current wife all the way from england for being the catalyst that finally I mean, John Sweeney is really the straw that broke the camel's back. He certainly wasn't the, the entire cause. You know, I write in the book about what a long process this was to have inklings and seedlings of doubt and concern and worry and thoughts and shove them aside and go, well, you know, if other people can survive this, so can I. If nobody else is leaving, why would I? If I leave, what's going to happen to my family? Oh my God, what's going to happen to my eternity? Am I going to, you know, become a black cinder burning for eternity in the cold nether reaches of space? What, like all of these thoughts that are inculcated into you as a Scientologist and particularly at the top levels of Scientology. That moment when he starts asking me about, you know, isn't it true that David Miscavige has physically assaulted you? And I'm going, nope, that's an absolute lie, John, and I will sue you. And like, I'm standing there. I walked away from that interview going, what am I doing? What, like, what has my life become? 
I'm standing here in the doorway of a Scientology organization in London lying to protect David Miscavige because it would be bad or I can't tell the truth about the fact that he is physically assaulting people, including me. How insane is this? This isn't why I came into Scientology. This isn't why I signed a billion-year contract with the C organization. That's not what it was for. It was to help L. Ron Hubbard save mankind. And now I'm standing here helping David Miscavige cover up his misdemeanors and misdeeds. And I still, though, was, you know, I can't leave my, I can't abandon my family. I I just can't do that. It's like such a violation of what I thought was, was my personal integrity. And then Miscavige just sort of put it over the edge and said, I'm never coming back to the United States. And I was going to be sent off to Western Australia to sell my body on the streets. And I went, okay, there is absolutely nothing left for me. I have got to get out of here. Nothing could be worse than this. And that, you know, the day after that is I was gone. Right. I don't know why I got off into that ramble. No, that's I told um... you. I told you early. <laughs> I ramble. <laughs> no, it's um I think it's it's a good teaser for the book people people definitely need to get uh your book a billion years. Um that was that was great Mike. Thank you so much. Uh I do so one last thing anything you would like to add as we kind of finish up our conversation today to our to our listeners. I I kind of the one message that I would love people to get out of this book is it's never too late to change. It is never too late to change the circumstances of your life. It's never too late to open a new door and walk through it. It seems sometimes like it couldn't possibly happen. It's going to be too hard. I won't make it or whatever. But I think I'm, a, I'm pretty good at evidence that it can actually be done if you really want to change and really want things to be different in your life. It, 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 the right thing to do is to do something. The wrong thing to do is to just, I wish I had not persisted and lasted as long as I did. I wish I had had the guts, the courage, whatever, to make that move a lot sooner than I did, but I'm sure glad I did when I did, and I'm not still there today. Yeah. Well, and then the book would be shorter too. So we <laughs> <laughs> we, we love we love the book. Um, a billion years, my escape from a life in the highest ranks of Scientology. Mike Render, thank you so much. This has been personally one of um, uh, this has been an interview that means a lot to me. I'm a big fan of your work and. Uh, I appreciate everything done. So it was an honor to meet you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kyle. It was a real pleasure. I like this is just a a conversation between friends. This yeah. didn't feel like a an interview at all. Right. No, this is great. This was um yeah, this was a beautiful thing. So um thank you. You're welcome. Take care, Mike. Okay. You too. Mm-hmm.